Support for AHLA and the following message comes from KPMG's Healthcare and Life Sciences Practice, helping clients comply with regulatory change, adopt effective tax strategies, improve outcomes through data analytics and advanced technologies, and more. For more information, visit kpmg.us. Hello. This is Preston Quesenberry with KPMG Washington National Tax, and I'm here today at the AHLA Tax Issues for Healthcare Organizations Conference. Uh, and with me is Andy Kochner from uh, Baird Homes uh, at LLP in, in Omaha, Nebraska. And Andy was, has been presenting, he actually did the uh, session twice, but presenting on 501R, in particular the, the title of the panel is called Common 501R Misses. Uh, Sandy, I wanted to ask you some questions about, you know, what you've been seeing as far as Common 501R Misses and also uh, maybe to the degree you can touch on it, what you think uh, some of the consequences of, of those misses might be. Um, so uh, for those in the audience that aren't uh, intimately familiar with 501R, it's, it's essentially a provision that applies to tax-exempt hospitals and it requires them to uh, to, to do certain things in order to maintain their tax exemption. And there are, there are four basic requirements. Um, it's 501R, 3, 4, 5, and 6, and I'm going to just kind of run through each of them and talk through what some of the, the common the footfalls or errors that, um, that Andy's been seeing in each of those areas. So the first one is 501R3, and that's a requirement that a hospital conduct a community health needs assessment at least once every three years. Um, and so to start with that, Andy, can you talk a little bit about the common footfalls or errors you see with the CHNAs, as they're called? Sure. Uh, I'd say uh, this is uh, one of the areas where I've seen the most action here recently, uh, and it's not necessarily uh, strictly from IRS enforcement. It's from uh, kind of self-audits and, and walking clients through uh, the community health needs assessment uh, process. Um, I'd say, and, and for the most part, uh, most clients, I think, have all the information that they need uh, have done all the things that they need to do. It's just a question of, of has it made it to the report uh, and have they appropriately documented it so that uh, they kind of check off all the boxes. Um, some of the things that I think uh, common misses that we see in terms of, of the report itself are number one, making sure that you've included and detailed how you've included the required categories of individuals or represent uh, bodies that represent uh, those types of individuals. Uh, public health departments are typically always involved uh, you know, minorities and lower income individuals as well. Uh, but like I said, I think most uh, organizations that, that are doing the community health needs assessment are doing those things. It's just appropriately uh, those, those activities making it through uh, to the reports themselves. Um, I think the other area that we see a lot of uh, activity in the community health needs assessment world is kind of, I think, a misunderstanding uh, about the adoption process and approval process from a board standpoint. Uh, in terms of what you have to do and when you have to do it by. I think we see one of two things typically happen. One is that uh, they either uh, adopt the community health needs assessment report <coughs> and they don't do anything about an implementation strategy by the end of their, uh, their tax year and it kind of they move on to other things. 
or uh, they have misread uh, the regulations or don't understand the regulations and they wait until the four and a half months after the end of the tax year to do everything, thinking that that grace period, if you will, applies to everything, whereas it actually requires that you do the report by the end of the tax year and approve the report by the end of the tax year and publish it. And then it gives you a four and a half month grace period to uh, adopt the implementation strategy. And so I think those are kind of the two things that we see uh, a lot of activity on or failures on, if you will, uh, is in the adoption process as well. Uh, I think uh, in terms of going forward, the difficulty as, as outside counsel in a lot of these cases is applying the, uh, the various silos of the, the, the remedial silos to these things. So this is really the only area of 501R where there's a, a financial penalty associated with, with a particular failure if you're uh, in the correct and disclose. I think uh, a lot of hospitals believe that if you correct and mistakenly believe that if you just correct and disclose it, they don't owe the, the excise tax, which is clearly uh, incorrect. Uh, and so if you correct and disclose, while it will not lead necessarily to uh, the loss of exemption, uh, it does result in the, in the payment of the excise tax. And so uh, having to deal with, with uh, situations in the community health needs assessment realm specifically, uh, where you have multiple failures, if you will, that, that taken individually uh, would seem minor and inadvertent or due to reasonable cause, when you put them all together, if you're an outside counsel having to draft some sort of opinion or give an opinion on that, uh, in terms of are we still in the minor and inadvertent or due to reasonable cause silo, if you will, versus are we in the correct and disclosed land where uh, the excise tax is due, um, that's very difficult to do uh, in this uh, situation given the guidance that we have. I mean, we have very limited guidance here right now. Uh, the revenue procedure gives two very basic examples of what they believe is minor and inadvertent, uh, and none of the errors or failures it, that I've seen uh, come close to that level of, of uh, minor, uh, you know, the falling behind the, the sign falling behind the couch or the, the uh, community health needs assessment being off of the website because the website was down for a couple hours. Um, that being said, I don't know that I would necessarily take uh, an opinion that that, uh, an approach that that's, that, that is that narrow, but it's just difficult to, to give an opinion that a tax is not owed. Uh, and so it's, it's kind of left up to the client as to what kind of risk that, they're wanted to, that they want to take in that, that particular area. Um, so community health needs assessments, I think, is, is where, in terms of as a practitioner going forward, uh, a lot of the uh, advice and it, it is going to be given just because of that particular implication. You know, if, if something gets, gets caught in an, in an internal audited client on a financial assistance side of things, uh, I think even if you're in a realm where you have to correct and disclose and you go down that route and aren't able to kind of come up with the, the argument that it is minor and inadvertent or due to reasonable cause, you know, again, there's really no financial penalty. So uh, there, there could be no, and really is no harm to disclose it other than, you know, concern about whether or not that's going to be some sort of yellow flag or red flag for to bring you up for actual exam. And I would have to imagine or at least hope that it might in fact have the opposite effect to show the IRS that you actually are uh, preemptively finding things and fixing things and you know to give them some level of comfort going forward that uh, you're complying with the law so yeah yeah and 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 just to, to bring the audience up up to speed a little bit in, in case they're not that familiar with the correction regime there is a, a three-tiered correction regime mm -hmm. or really a two-tiered with the third tier being 
right. you're out. Right. Possibility. Yeah, but the first error being if an error or mission is minor and inadvertent, you can correct it and move on and it's like you've never had a failure. Right. And that's important for purposes of CH&As uh, because as, as you know, there is an excise tax with CH&As, a $50,000 excise tax, that mm -hmm. if there's never been a failure, you don't have to worry about the excise tax. But if you're above minor and inadvertent, which as you pointed out, um, can be determined looking at errors in the aggregate, not just mm -hmm. an isolated instance, um, then you can still correct and disclose for purposes of tax exemption, but you're still potentially subject to this $50,000 excise tax. And the CH&A of the four 501R requirements, that's the only one where the excise tax applies. And, and for that reason, it may be like, I, I've heard the IRS talk about 501R3 was the one area that they thought audits were actually productive, mm -hmm. uh, or the one area that they noted. They mentioned 501R4s, the financial assistance policy requirements, as being, it was more productive just to send out these compliance check letters. But they mm -hmm. said audits were productive for CH&As, and I'm assuming that means because they could actually collect revenue in the form of these $50,000 taxes. Mm -hmm. And one thing I'm curious about uh, on the exam side is if you've seen, what I've mostly seen so far in my experience has been exam agents looking at, okay, well, did you do the CH&A, the implementation strategy? Did you adopt it? Did you do it on time? Did you put it on your website? What I've not seen thus far, and I'm curious to see whether this changes as the final regs have gotten into effect, is whether or not an exam agent actually opens the CHNA or the implementation strategy and says, hey, is this include, does this include all the required elements? I know on your panel yesterday, you mentioned, for example, the uh, evaluation of the impact of the actions that were taken mm -hmm. uh, you know, since the last CHNA. And if, if an agent happened to see that as missing, have you seen them actually noting that or potentially applying a $50,000 excise tax in that case, the missing element. Yeah, I have not seen that, but I think we might be going there. I, I know from my conversations with my, my co-presenter and such that, that the view, uh, at least right now at the, at the service, is uh, still did you do it and did you adopt it, but given some comments from the floor even, uh, some questions from the floor, and, and I think this goes to kind of some of the preliminary comments that, that I've have and observations that I have as well, which is, you know, uh, the variation amongst uh, the examining agents, I think very, it, it's, it's a gap. Uh, some are very well versed and, and know what they're doing and know what they're looking for. Others, I think, kind of sometimes focus on little issues and get into things that are uh, a little more detailed than one would expect. And so while I think you have uh, nationally kind of this uh, thought process that they're more cons they're not concerned about the content or the results of the community health needs assessment they're just concerned with checking off the boxes I think you do on a case-by-case -case basis run into agents that uh, when they review and exam things uh, particularly the community health needs assessment but also other areas as well 501r uh, sometimes get into the to the weeds and ask questions about things have I seen an excise tax be applied because of missing something like uh, uh, or, or not necessarily putting in your report that you reviewed prior responses from community health needs assessment? Uh, probably not, or no, I haven't. But I would say that um, my biggest concern is the minor in the aggregate. You know, right. I think that, that the chances of any particular community health needs assessment report, given the, the detail of the regulations, checking off every box, there's probably a chance, a greater chance that, that one, of, one of the boxes may, might not be checked. Uh, probably also a chance that, that it's not checked because it's not in the report, but the data exists and they talked about it, just didn't make it in, which in that case, I probably wouldn't have a problem getting to a minor and inadvertent type of conclusion. Yeah. It's, I think, the when, when and if they get to reports that have more than one of those 
items or have some of those items coupled with adoption issues yeah. um, that I think the, the real action is going to happen. I, I, you know, I've had to counsel a few clients and just say, I, you know, I can't go there from an opinion standpoint, so I recommend paying the excise tax. Um, whether or not they have, I, I don't know. Um, uh, but I have to imagine that, that, that some others have as well in terms of you know, voluntarily disclosed and paid the excise tax. So. And, and your co-panelist, just to, to tell the audience, was, was from the IRS, it was Jeff Correct. Campbell. So Correct. presumably been working with exam agents on some of, this is, on some of these issues. So um, I'm gonna move on to 501R4, which is, uh, requires hospitals to, um, to establish a, a financial assistance policy. And, and there are certain required elements in those financial assistance policies. So, um, you know, I think there's, there's two types of errors that you could have. One is you could have errors in the uh, financial assistance policy itself and not including some of the required elements. Uh, and you could also have errors um, in widely publicizing that financial assistance policy, which is another mm -hmm. requirement. Uh, can you talk a little bit about the, the most common error you see in each one of those? Yeah, I would say the, the most common error that I see in terms of publication, I'll start on the backside and, and work forward, is the uh, the, the failure to go beyond just putting it on your website and have it in the, available at your facility in the various required locations, admissions, and, and the emergency room. Uh, you know, the regs very clearly say that you have to, you have to widely publicize it uh, to those who, who may need and, and uh, that may need financial assistance or may, may take advantage of financial assistance. And I think that uh, particularly because of the grace uh, period, or not grace period, but, but changes that we got from the proposed regs to the final regs, where if you recall, the proposed reg said you had to have all of these particular publication elements actually in the policy itself. Since those got dropped when the final regs came about, I think uh, that there was an increase in terms of uh, kind of forgetting that there were additional steps. Um, you know, I agree it didn't really make a whole lot of sense to have that type of information in the policy itself because it's not really policy driven uh, or, or something that would typically be in a hospital policy. But the fact of the matter remains that I think a lot of at least clients that I've seen don't go that extra step or voluntarily go that extra step, they have to be re-educated that, you know, you need to go further, you need to uh, go to your local charities that might touch individuals who need financial assistance and somehow publicize it through them. I mean, th there's no right way to do it, but you have to do something, and I think you have to show that you've thought it out uh, as these are the most appropriate ways and, and best ways to reach folks that, that may need financial assistance. Uh, to do nothing is, is, in a, is not enough. Uh, and I still think that some are probably there and they don't realize it. Um, and so that's, that's a, the most common miss in terms of publication that, that I've seen. Um, in terms of the, the contents of the policy itself, uh, I would say the, the next uh, biggest issue would be uh, the disclosure of practitioners and the accuracy of that. Mm -hmm. um, you know, I think that, that most know that there's the guidance that exists that you have to be, uh, or that you can publish that list outside of the policy and refer to it. Uh, I think most know that it has to be updated. I think I still see uh, gaps in what has to be on the list in terms of, I think most, if, if there's a common error, it's that they just list the providers that are part of the policy and they leave the, the providers that aren't part of the policy out of the list, uh, in which it has to be both. It has to be both providers that are and then the providers that are not and you can do that by department or by group which was also is also something I think that's not necessarily widely known I think it's widely known amongst practitioners whether or not that's gotten through to facilities I, I don't know and I, I don't think it has across the board uh, but that's a that's a, another common failure 
uh, and I would just say that the third thing that I see just from a, a case-by-case basis is not necessarily an issue with the policy itself per se, missing something. It's kind of, I would say, definitional regret in terms of the eligibility criteria. Mm-hmm. You know, the, the service, the regulations, the statute don't tell you what your eligibility criteria has to be. Uh, it just says you have to have it and essentially you have to uniformly apply it uh, in order to uh, comply with the, the regs and statute. And so I think that some facilities just focus in on the income-based test uh, and, and neglect maybe a net worth kind of uh, standard or exception, likewise kind of the medical indigence. And, and, I, and I'm not saying every provider does, th- does it this way, but there are some that do. They just focus on, on uh, income. And there are plenty of individuals out there in various industries and such that uh, maybe have low income in a particular year, but are very high net worth. And so when that person comes in and applies for financial assistance, you get calls from hospital administrators that say this person should not receive financial assistance, but if you look at the you know the four corners of the document that they have, the person does, and you're kind of left uh, stuck between a rock and a hard place there, where they technically need to give that individual financial assistance, or you know, so it's it's kind of more of an application of the rules uh, issue than it is the the document itself. So it's a good reminder that that facilities, when they set their eligibility criteria, should think critically about all potential. Uh, individuals or classes of individuals that might need or seek financial assistance and how do they want to structure that so that they can get the people that they believe from a missional standpoint uh, need financial assistance versus those that maybe uh, don't. Um, All right, well, we could probably go on talking for a while, but I know we're running short on time. So I'll I'll just ask you one final question and that uh, relates to enforcement. as I mentioned, with 501R4, the financial assistance policy requirement, I've heard the IRS say that they're sending out compliance letters. Um, and at least my experience has been, you know, usually if you, even if you have mistakes, if you reply to say, oh yeah, we had this mistake, but we fixed it, the IRS goes away. Mm-hmm. Um, so I was curious to see if that's been your experience or if you've seen further follow-up from those compliance. But then the other question I wanted to ask was the final two requirements 501R5, which is the amounts generally billed requirement, and 501R6, which is the um, that you can't do extraordinary collection actions supporting reasonable efforts to determine uh, eligibility under the FAP. Like that seems to have kind of dropped off the IRS discussion points, at least when they're talking about IRS enforcement. So I'm curious, particularly since the regs have been in place, if you've seen any enforcement of those two provisions. Uh, I have. I have not seen. I would say I saw more enforcement of those provisions back when uh, we were in tax years or, or the yeah. IRS was looking at tax years that, uh, that were not subject to the final regulations. I think uh, now that we're in those tax years uh, and because of the fact that there's really very little that the IRS can do once the audit has started in terms of giving you grace <clears throat> you know, in those areas because there's no excise tax, it's either you know, loss of exemption or you're good, I think we're still seeing the compliance checks. <clears throat> I think that's kind of their way of, of getting to, uh, I wouldn't say getting around, but getting to a point where they can assure compliance without having to uh, go down the road of, of revoking exemption from a facility that maybe wasn't dotting all their I's and crossing all their T's from a R4, 5, or 6 yeah. perspective. Uh, in terms of enforcement activity, and, and I think that's partially why I would, I would agree with you that some of the efforts around R6 uh, haven't been as intense as they were previously, but uh, I also, you know, as, as we heard in, in other programs here, uh, I think that, that con- 
congressional focus is definitely on R6. Yeah. Uh, and I think that's where the PR aspect comes in it, into it as well, because quite frankly, uh, a facility can comply very easily with R6 and do a whole lot of things that if in the newspaper look bad yeah. <coughs> and, uh, and draw, do things like draw congressional uh, scrutiny uh, and, and you know, connecting the dots with the public about, yes, we complied with the law, but it looks bad and why are we getting investigated by Congress are two very different things. Yeah. Uh, and so I think that, that R6 is more of a PR issue right now uh, and ensure, you know, as well as ensuring compliance, but uh, I think that's where uh, I'm seeing it right now is kind of counseling clients of, yes, you could do that, but should you do that? Yeah. yeah. All right, well, thank you very much, Andy, and um, I think that's a wrap.